0: Let's pray together. Father, we've just again to grant us grace, almighty Lord, to read and mark your holy word and to receive its truths with meekness and then to live by its holy precepts. We thank you that this evening we can come to these words of Jesus and learn much from him. And so we pray that you would help me and help us all as we consider these words of Christ and all that it means for us today. Father, we pray this for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it would be great if you could please keep your Bible open there at Luke chapter 20, please. And as you'll know if you've been with us in recent weeks here, Luke chapter 20 tells the story of the Tuesday of what we today refer to as Holy Week. Uh, We're seeing, aren't we, that it was a day filled with controversy. Luke records for us five different controversies that each took place that day between Jesus and various different religious authorities. Controversy number one was in verses one to eight, where the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to Jesus whilst he was preaching and they questioned his authority. They wanted to undermine him in front of the crowd, and if possible, get him to say something that would allow them to arrest him for blasphemy. But of course, Jesus turned the tables on them, and he stumped them with his own question. And then controversy number two is in verses 9 to 18. And that's where we see Jesus going on the front foot. Uh, He is the one who initiates the second controversy. And he does so by telling this parable about some wicked tenants. Uh, We looked at it last week and it's a very easy parable to understand. Uh, It's clearly aimed against the religious leaders of the day in particular, And it's criticizing them for the way in which they are rejecting God's beloved Son, Jesus, whom the Father has sent into the world. And for this rejection, they will face God's judgment. That brings us then to controversy number three, here in verses 19 to 26. And again, it's the religious authorities this time who launch the attack. And again, they're going to try and catch Jesus out by asking him something of a, a trick question. And so to start with, let's just notice a number of things about the nature of this latest attack against Jesus, which Luke highlights for us. Uh, firstly, notice that this attack is murderous in its goal. It is murderous in its goal. You might ask, well, why do these religious leaders keep coming up against Jesus time and time again like this? What is it that they're trying to achieve with all these different attacks against Jesus? And Luke has already told us that a little earlier on, back in chapter 19, verse 47, just after Jesus had cleansed the temple on the Monday, the day before, what we're looking at today. So Luke tells us that the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. You see, they have murderous intentions. They want rid of Jesus once and for all. And that murderous intention has only intensified now that they've just heard this parable of the wicked tenants that Jesus has just told. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They knew full well what that parable meant They knew that it was a stinging criticism of them for the way in which they were rejecting Jesus. So how did they respond to that parable? By rejecting Jesus some more. It's ironic, isn't it? And their problem, however, is that Jesus is still so popular with the crowds. Uh, They can't just arrest him openly because the crowds are going to be in uproar if they do. And so they need to find an alternative way of doing away with Jesus. And they come up with the idea of getting Rome to do the dirty work for them. So as verse 20 puts it, they want to catch Jesus in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor, who was at this stage Pilate. Let Pilate put him to death for something. Then they will have solved the Jesus problem once and for all. Let Pilate put him to death. Their plan is murderous in its goal. And secondly, their plan is flattering in its appearance. Back in verses one to eight, they've already tried the approach of simply criticizing Jesus directly. And implicitly accusing him of being a con man. And as we've seen already, that approach didn't work. And so they try a very different approach now. Instead of criticism, they try flattery. Verse 20 they sent along a group of spies, and these spies pretended to be sincere. They put on their most honest and friendly looking faces and they went up to Jesus whilst he was still in the temple that day and they acted as if they had a very genuine, very honest question that they were just struggling with. They wanted uh, some help with it. Of course, that was a load of nonsense, wasn't it? They weren't really sincere at all. This was a trap, but they dressed it up to look like an honest, friendly question and notice the way how they laid the flattery on thick as they started to speak to Jesus verse 21 they asked him teacher we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God and you see don't you there they're trying to soften Jesus up with these things they call him teacher They're pretending to recognize his authority by using that title. And they then praise him for being a teacher who speaks what is right. And that he does so regardless of who he's speaking to because he's impartial. It doesn't matter who he's speaking to, Jesus will say what is right. And they say that he truly teaches the way of God. That is, he teaches people the way that God calls them to live. Now, the irony is, of course, that all those things they said about Jesus were 100% true. And yet these people didn't believe them for a second. It was all flattery. It's been said before that gossip is saying things behind a person's back that you would never say to their face. Whereas flattery is saying things to a person's face that you would never say behind their back. This is clear flattery, isn't it? They try and soften Jesus up with this array of compliments that they offer to him. So their attack was flattering in its appearance. And then thirdly, their attack was crafty in its method. Crafty in its method. Verse 22, we we get to the question itself. They say to Jesus, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, they're talking here about a particular tax that the Jewish people had to pay directly to the Roman Caesar who ruled over Judea in those days. And of course, the Jews hated this tax. They hated this tax in particular because it was a reminder to them that they were a subject nation. They lived under the rule of the Romans. And by begrudgingly paying this tax, They were forced into acknowledging the emperor and acknowledging his authority over them. So how will Jesus answer this question? And it's crafty because whichever way he answers, yes or no, it's going to turn out badly for him. If on the one hand Jesus says, yes, we should pay those taxes to Caesar, well, that will immediately alienate the crowd of people from him. It will make him look like a a Roman sympathizer. It will make him unpopular with all the Jews. And this Jesus movement will then just grind to a halt and it will become just a, a minor footnote in history. And yet on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, we should not pay those taxes to Caesar, then he would be exposing himself to the charge of rebellion against the Roman government. He could be handed over to Pilate. He could be executed as a revolutionary. Now Luke doesn't tell us this little bit of information, but we know from the other gospel writers that this group of spies who had been sent to Jesus to ask this question were made up both of Pharisees and Herodians. Now we know a little bit about the the Pharisees and one of the things that was true of them was that they were against the idea of Roman rule over the Jews. They wanted Israel to be free of the Romans. But the Herodians had a, a different outlook on things and they were somewhat sympathetic to Roman rule. They saw that there were some benefits to living under the Roman Empire, and so they said, well, let's work out a way of, of being Jews, but with Herod and with the Romans ruling over us. And normally the, these two groups were loggerheads with one another. And yet they join forces here in order to try and trap Jesus. Whichever way Jesus answers, he's going to upset one of these two groups, the Pharisees or the Herodians. He'll upset the Herodians if he says something against Rome. He will upset the Pharisees if he says something for Rome. And so Jesus, as it were, is on the horns of this dilemma. What is he going to say? This is the nature of the latest attack against Jesus. Controversy number three. This plan was murderous in its goal, flattering in its appearance, and crafty in its method. What is Jesus gonna say to get out of this one? And of course, he's not taken in even for a moment by this trick, is he? Luke says in verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. In John chapter two, the apostle John says that Jesus knew what was in man. He's not gonna be taken in by this facade, by this craftiness. He sees straight through it. And as Jesus offers his answer to this question, I wanna notice this evening three principles that Jesus applies here, which as we're gonna see are very relevant for us as God's people today. The first principle is this, Jesus acknowledges the authority of the state. Jesus acknowledges the authority of Of the state. And in his response, Jesus doesn't give this straight yes or no answer that his questioners had been hoping for in order to trap him either way. Now, instead, his first response is simply to say, Show me a denarius. Show me a denarius. This was a, a small silver Roman coin. It was equal to a a laborer's wages for a, a day's work. And it's worth just pausing and asking, well, why does Jesus request that they, his opponents, produce one of these coins themselves? Could Jesus not have just got one out of his own pocket if he'd had one with him? Or he could have asked anyone in the crowd that day to produce one of these coins. And as well as that, After all, it's not essential, is it, that there is a denarius there at all for what Jesus is about to say. So, for example, we all know what a pound coin looks like, don't we, without having to to delve into our pockets and, and get one out to remind ourselves. It's worth asking, why does Jesus, A, ask that a denarius be produced before him, and B, ask that his questioners in particular produce this denarius? Well, we often miss this, but Jesus is being very clever here, and he's setting up what he's about to say next. And by getting them, his questioners, to produce a denarius, it underlines the fact that they themselves, they themselves use these Roman coins in their everyday life. It's in their own pockets. They buy things with them. They accept them as payment. If they're selling anything, they benefit from its usage? And by so doing, they themselves tacitly acknowledge the very fact of Roman rule over them. And then Jesus underlines that point by asking that question, whose likeness in inscription does it have? And of course, the answer is that it has Caesar's likeness and Caesar's inscription upon it. So the question is simply say, Caesar's. And this is Jesus' preliminary point. This is not his main point, as we'll see. But this is where he begins. This is where he starts. He acknowledges the authority of the state. And he gets his questioners to acknowledge the authority of the state as well by reaching into their own pockets and showing that they use Roman coinage. And you see, he's getting his questioners to understand, look, whether you like it or not, The fact is that you live your life under the authority of the Roman state. That is the reality for how life is for you. And those coins jangling in your pocket are a little reminder every time you look at them that you live under Caesar's authority. You live your life within his domain, in the realm over which he rules. And like it or not, that is just a fact of life. You live as citizens within Caesar's empire. Now Christ's apostles, as they wrote the rest of the New Testament, would flesh out further this Christian view of acknowledging the authority of the state. So for example, the apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And so Paul argues, we acknowledge the authority of the state not simply because it is a fact of life, but actually because it is a God-given fact of life. Paul puts it very simply, doesn't he? All governing authorities are appointed by God. And of course, that doesn't mean that God condones everything that every governing authority does. But it does mean that the authority they wield has been put into their hands by God, even if they then abuse that power and that authority. What does that mean for us as Christians today? Well, very simply, it means that if Jesus acknowledged the authority of the state, then so should we. Again, it doesn't mean necessarily that we agree with the governing authorities on every issue, and depending on which party happens to be in power at any given time, we may or may not have voted for them, whether that's locally or nationally. We might not be happy with our leaders, just as the Jews were not happy with having the Romans ruling over them. And yet, no matter, the biblical outlook is to acknowledge the authority of the state, Because every governing authority that exists has been instituted by God. And that first principle leads naturally to the second principle that Jesus outlines here. And that is that Jesus commands obedience to the state. Jesus commands obedience to the state. The logic is easy to follow, isn't it? If we must acknowledge the state's authority because it is instituted by God, Well, of course, that must show itself in obeying what the state says. And so Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, yes, they should pay this tax. That's the short answer. Yes, they should. As ruler over them, Caesar had the right to levy taxes, And as citizens under him, the Jews had the responsibility to pay those taxes. Once again in Romans 13, Paul takes this principle and he applies it to Christians in general. He says we are to live in obedience to the state. He writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience for because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of god attending to this very thing pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed this raises an obvious question doesn't it the question is Do we still have to obey the state if the state is ungodly or evil? Do we still have to obey an ungodly governing authority? And the answer is yes. But as we shall see, it is a qualified yes. The simple answer is yes, we must still obey even an ungodly governing authority because they are nonetheless instituted by God. God has placed that power in their hands even if they misuse it, even if deep down they don't deserve it, of course. There are many biblical examples of this principle we could turn to. For example, the Roman Empire itself was not a godly empire. Uh, Their emperors set themselves up as being, in some ways, divine, and they called for their subjects to offer worship to them, and yet Jesus here is saying, pay your taxes to them. Likewise, Paul says, be subject to them. And the Apostle Peter, who was writing to Christians who were facing severe persecution in the days of Nero, he wrote these words, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Even though the emperor had killed many of them, Peter says, honor the emperor. The emperor Nero was was attacking the church, persecuting them, putting them to death. And yet Peter says, honor him, be subject to him, live in obedience. And so the principle is this, even if those in power are ungodly or evil, this all still applies, doesn't it? Jesus commands obedience to the state. So Christians should pay their taxes, they should stick to the speed limit, they should obey the laws of the land, they should be good citizens, they should honour those in authority over them in society, whomever they may be. And as we live like this, we demonstrate to those around us something of the reasonableness of the gospel. In that same passage where he's speaking about living in subjection to the emperor and those in authority over them. Peter says this. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And in a similar way, we live in an age and a time, don't we, when so many people want to say that Christians are intolerant and dangerous and harmful to society. What Peter is saying there in 1 Peter 2 is that when Christians live godly, upright lives, being good citizens, that is one of the ways in which the criticism of the world is silenced when they see that actually Christians are are not like how society often paints them. And so yes, even when the state is ungodly, even when we don't like who is in charge, even when we disagree with many of their policies, we still obey the state. But as I said a few minutes ago, this is a qualified yes. There is a certain exception to this, isn't there? And that is when the state demands that we do something which is against God's laws. In that scenario, we don't obey what the state says. And that leads us to the third principle that Jesus teaches us here. So firstly, Jesus acknowledges the authority of the state Secondly, Jesus commands obedience to the state. Thirdly, Jesus honors God above the state. Jesus honors God above the state. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And as Jesus has pointed out already, that little silver coin bore the image of Caesar. And therefore, it was right for it to be given back to him. When that little coin was made, it was made with the likeness of Caesar stamped upon it. And yet, what is it that bears the image, not of Caesar, but of God? What is it that when it was created, was created in the likeness, with the likeness of God upon it? Of course, the answer is that you were. And I was, all of us were. And so whilst we give to Caesar what is rightfully Caesar's, we give to God what is rightfully his. That is, we should offer our whole selves to him. Not just a a percentage of our income. No, we offer our whole selves to him because we ourselves are made in his likeness. We bear his image. And by saying this, Jesus is therefore honoring God above the state. Yes, the state can call for your obedience in paying taxes and such like. But Jesus is saying there is only so far that the state can go rightfully. Only God can command that you give your whole self to him. And that you obey him. Completely, and you worship him exclusively, and you love him with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. Caesar cannot rightfully ask that of you. And if he asks for that, we are to disobey him. And indeed, of course, the Roman emperors didn't they? In Jesus' day, they called for people to worship them as divine. Jesus is being clear here. In doing that, they're overstepping the mark. There are many Christians in the world today who live under Caesars like that, Caesars who command them to do things that are against God's law, calling them to renounce their faith, calling them uh, to offer worship to idols. For Christians living in those contexts, to live faithfully, they must disobey in that regard and indeed suffer persecution for it. That is what it means for them to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and yet to render to God what is God's. And you see how this this answer of Jesus, with great wisdom, with great insight, it puts Caesar in his rightful place, but also, more importantly, it puts God in his rightful place. Jesus upholds the authority of the state, he commands obedience to the state. And yet he honors God above the state. And it forces his questioners onto the back foot, doesn't it? It shows them that the main issue, the main issue that they must grapple with is not, am I giving to Caesar what I should be giving to Caesar? Now, as we've seen, that is an important question. But that's not the main question, is it? Above all, the main question is this Am I giving to God? What is God's? If I'm made in his image, if I bear his likeness, am I offering my whole self to him? Have I turned to him in repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus to forgive me and to save me? And do I now seek to live my life serving God above all else Loving him with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. Am I giving to God what is rightfully his? It's a great answer that Jesus offers, isn't it? And Luke tells us that these spies were not able to catch Jesus in what he said. And marveling at his answer, they became silent. Once again, their attempt to trick Jesus, their attempt to catch him out, had failed. But they're gonna keep trying, as we'll see next time in Luke's gospel. They'll keep trying to catch Jesus out and they'll keep failing. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wisdom Of our Lord Jesus displayed once again in these verses and we pray that we would understand and live out these principles that Jesus sets before us in these verses and we thank you that you are the God who institutes governing authorities for the good of society as a whole and in your word we are called to pray for those who are in positions of authority over us and so father again we we pray for them now we pray that they would lead with justice and mercy and they would do so in line with your laws. We know that we live in days when the standards of your word are being cast aside so quickly and we pray that that would be reversed. We pray that those who govern would lead in a way that is in line with your standards and your revealed truth. And we pray that we ourselves would live as good citizens obeying the state whatever we think of those in power and that by so doing we would commend the gospel to a society which so often is out to criticize and dismiss the christian faith and yet we pray that above all else we would honor and serve and worship you even when that means disobeying the state necessarily And with that in mind, we do pray in particular for Christians living under intense persecution, that they would be given all the strength they need to remain faithful to you, even in the midst of great opposition. Help us all to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, whilst giving our whole selves to you in faith and doing so for your glory. Our Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.